So this evening, I would like to talk about something which is uh, very much used in the Zen tradition to describe the meditative path, which is, uh, they have this series of ten pictures that you often you can find that it be in China, Korea or Japan, you can find them around the walls. And they, they would be either with uh, various colored painting or they will be with uh, brush stroke. And the it's, ten, it's a series of ten images and they call the ten ox herding picture. Uh, everybody know what an ox is? Because <laughs> sometimes people wonder, ox, what's an ox? So I presume for them it's kind of like a young buffalo, you know, I presume, but they, they translate it as ox. So, so in fact they call the ten ox herding pictures. And I really like these pictures because in them they really show the meditative path. It's very much kind of showing the path, the spiritual path. And, and of course, all these images you can always understand in various ways. So the way I like to look at them is a little to look at in general the spiritual life and also in terms of the meditation practice. So I will kind of weave these two in and out. And generally these uh, pictures are, with them are associated uh, po poems. And then there is poems of poems and commentary. So it's very much very traditional. Generally, all Zen masters will write poems about these images. But I won't be reciting my own poems, don't worry. <laughs> so, and each of these pictures has, has a name. I mean, it's very kind of traditional. Each has a name. So the first one is called Searching for the Ox. And the image is of this little guy, called the ox herder, is a little kind of pigtail fellow or lady fellow, I don't know. Anyway, so let's say it's a little fellow. And it's kind of, in this picture, you have a fe little fellow kind of looking a little kind of, uh, not, totally not totally sure where he is and what he is doing, but looking like he's kind of looking for something. And then you have little birds, you have little uh, generally painting of the birds, the trees. And what you have the feeling with this image is that there is this little oxerder kind of wondering, where is the ox? And so kind of there is all kind of sound and all kind of feeling and is it, is it? And in a way I think this image is very much about ourselves. At various points in our life, where in a way we, we feel we're looking for something, but we might not even know what we're looking for. It's kind of like this, something is like something is missing. There is some feeling that we might get all kinds of things. I mean, I think often there is this idea that if I get this, if I get that. So often we think, oh, if I get a relationship, or if I get a house, or if I get a good job, or if I get this, if I become a monk, if I do this, if I do that. But something, in a way, there is this yearning. There is this kind of, we were looking for something. And I remember when I was very young, I mean, from a very young age, age 11, I wanted to go. I mean, my parents were lovely. I mean, they were really nice, really friendly, no problem at home. But I wanted to go. You know, and I would 
been daydreaming about going somewhere. You know, and I think, thinking, well, I can't go now. They're going to worry about me if I go age 11. <laughs> so I kind of restrained myself. But it was amazing, that kind of urge to go. It was very kind of inchoate. And then there is the, the next picture, which is called Seeing the Footprints. And there, you know, the little Oxford is there, little fellow is there, and there are footprints. And they do look like ox footprints, <laughs> not elephant footprints, you know. So it's kind of, in this picture, there is this kind of like, what is missing start to become clearer. We kind of start to have an inkling. What is it, you know, we're kind of looking for? What is it we're yearning for? And it seems to me, in a way, it's kind of like this picture is about finding traces. And it's at the time where we might, in a way, start to become inspired or interested in ideas. Maybe spiritual ideas, meditative ideas, you might read books, you might listen to talks. But I think there it's still kind of quite far away. In a way it's just footprint, it's just traces. It's just kind of in a way often traces on papers. And I remember when I was uh, around age 19, I had left home, of course, and as soon as I could, I, I went, I went. And so I was, uh, at that time, for some reason, we were all reading Krishnamurti. And, you know, and I was very taken by, by this writing, you know. I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing, you know. So finally I decided, you know, to take the book and to go to the mountain and to, since it was easier that way to fast for two or three days and really kind of, you know, be with the book and try to, to do what it says. So I kind of went with my book, a blanket, up the mountain. And then I would sit there, you know, as he said, you know, you are in nature, you kind of, you know, and you, it generally his message was look, you know, be aware. And so I would sit there, I would look, <laughs> look. <laughs> I would reread the book, look. And nothing happened whatsoever. So finally I gave up after a day and a half. <laughs> because in a way it was not, it was still just traces. It was just still quite far away, still exotic, still quite separate, away from myself. And then there is a third picture, which is called Seeing the Ox. And I love this picture because generally what you only see is actually the bottom of the ox with the tail. <laughs> You know, so there is like these big bushes and little oxidae is kind of like, oh, there it is. But actually, the idea is that, you know, you see the bottom here, you see the bottom there, you see there. It, it, it kind of not staying still, that bottom and that kind of fleeting tail, <laughs> you know. And it seems to me that in a way this picture of seeing the ox, kind of fleetingly seeing the ox, is when, in a way, we kind of decide we really feel, yes, you know, I want to do meditation, I want to do something spiritual or something kind of which has to do with that. And we're not sure. We're not really sure. So we kind of, we hear this, we try this, we try that. And I know for about two, three years, I did not try everything because in those days, there was not that much. Because this was in 73, 75, so in those days, it was much less than now. Now it's a supermarket. You know, it's a Tesco of spirituality. 
but in Zusi it was not so. So you know, you kind of really tried what was around, and so I kind of tried Taoism by correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. Then I tried uh, a kind of uh, energetic meditation naked. That was again kind of kind of a bit weird. Uh, then I tried Sufism, this kind of Sufi prayer. That was kind of all right, but I don't know, something did not correspond to what I wanted to do. But again and again, I was kind of, I would just try these things, because my friend did this, they did that, so I would just try these various things. But for some reason, they, they did not gel. And I think there is this stage where we're interested. We kind of want to do something. We want to really try. We really, you know, we want to go beyond just the world. But it's trying, it's kind of thing, it takes some time. Sometimes straight away you find somebody, because I mean, I saw great lamas, you know, there was, I was twice at the special black hat ceremony, and I was at this and that, I mean, anything, you went. But still it did not gel. And I think it's kind of like there is that stage where we were really looking, trying this and that, but not really finding it yet. And then there is a fourth picture, which is called Catching the Ox. And there you have the, you have the kind of the ox is in full apparition, fully there, and the ox has managed to put a, a, a rope around the neck of the, of the ox, so he can hold on to it. However, the ox is not that keen to be hold on to. So the, the hawk is jumping here, jumping there, and you really see the kind of hawks that are kind of holding on for just dear life. It's kind of really holding on. But you know, up she goes. She goes a bit, and then mm, gets back, and off she goes. And I think this, you might have experienced during the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's when we, in a way, really go for it. We decide to do it. We're going to do this. So finally we find something which seems relatively comfortable, relatively seems to make sense. Yes, you know, this is, I can do this. You know, I want to do this. And then you start to do it. And actually from what you read, I mean, just as the same with the Krishnamurti book, the same as what you read and what the doing of it is always different. You know, and there is this kind of, you know, having to sit there and having to try to concentrate. And I can remember when I ended up so by accident in Korea and then decided to become a nun and then decided to go on this three-month retreat. I had never sat for more than an hour one, once a day, you know, a few times. That was all I had ever done. And then it was ten hours a day, day in there for three months. And it was agony. <laughs> it was so hard. You know, I would, I would kind of slowly, slowly, I managed to put my cushion in front of the door. It was a summer, you know. So the door was open, and then I felt, you know, at least I could look outside. You know, I could kind of, you know, be entertained by, you know, the colors <laughs> and things. And the main feeling was I couldn't breathe. I had never had to sit still in that way for any length of time. I liked the idea. I wanted to do it. I really wanted to do it. But I would sit there, and then after an hour, I felt that I would, I would hyperventilate. So I always find some good reason to go somewhere else. You know, I had to help people in the kitchen, I had to go and learn Korean or whatever. And then one day Master Kuzan came and he sat there and I thought, oh, he's there, I must make an effort, you know, I'm not going to move. Mm. 
first time now, I thought, well, it, it, it can stay. I am going. I am going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went. And so he noticed I did not return, of course, <laughs> after the walking. And so he said to the leader of the hall, you know, you must speak to her. So when I came back, the leader of the hall had the dictionary in hand, and I always remember those words, kind of in my memory. It was octiro chamsa, and it meant to bear beyond strength. And that's what, you know, Master Kuzan said to do. So I said, well, if he said so, I must do so. And what was interesting is that totally changed my mind. I started to see it, to not kind of skive off, and then within a month I was the first one to arrive. So I think all of us go through this period of time. And I think these pictures actually are not linear. I think we have to be careful of not thinking it's kind of linear, but that in a way we go back to them at different stages, at different places. And it seems to me this one, we come back to it regularly. <laughs> I think when we start a retreat, we seem to really come back to that one. That in a way, you know, there is this kind of time where it seems that we are fighting, that there is compulsion, impulsion, sleepiness, all kinds of things. And then the main thing we need to do, it seems to me, is to be there, to really be there. So in a way, to, to not fight, not get angry, but in a way to land the oxford kind of hold on to the rope and kind of jump a little with the car as well. So there is kind of, you know, oh yes, you know. But we holding on to, we kind of staying there. There is this kind of, you know, start to be this kind of firmness. And then there is the next one, the number five, which is tending the ox. And this is actually kind of a quite an interesting picture because you have the ox. And you have the ox herder, and they're kind of walking along together. And then between them, there is a rope, which is very loose. And then the ox herder is just, just holding it very faintly, but still holding it. And you have the rope between the two, like that. A little lax, but still you hold it. And I think this is in a way when we start to know what we have to do. We start to know what meditation is about. We start to... In a way, we become really familiar with it. We kind of know what to do. We kind of settle into it. But at the same time, we must not be complacent. And I think that's why the oxford is still holding the rope. Because you never know, you know? Suddenly it might run off. <laughs> Go back to the picture before. <laughs> so there is this kind of more kind of being with the practice of being more at ease, a little more at ease, but kind of just, in a way, being with the practice, I think that this is about, that you are tending the practice. You are not fighting, but you're kind of, you know, settling in. And also this, I think here, you start to have, that you start to know yourself what you have to do. I think it's the picture where you start to, in a way, become your own teacher. Because I know, Often, you know, you ask questions and you might say, you know, I used to ask questions like that, you know, how to make the questions vivid? How to develop concentration? You know, often one is asked this question. But if you have practiced for a little while, you know yourself. And the only thing you can do is do it. And I think, you know, very much standing the is about that. Do what you really know. 
what is to be done. And I think that's what it is about. And then there is number six, which is riding the ox back home. And this is a lovely picture because you have the ox, no ropes, the ropes has gone, and the ox herder is playing the flute on the back of the ox. So it's kind of in a way a picture of utter ease, total confidence, total faith in that the ox knows where it's going, it knows what it's doing. But at the same time, it's not only just of kind of ease, but what I like about it is that he's playing the flute. It's also when we start to see how meditation can help us to be creative. It doesn't make us creative, but it kind of allows us. There is more spaciousness created, more lightness. And within that, there can be some creativity. And so that's why I would say to be careful of thinking of spirituality, meditation as something very grim. Of course, the fourth picture is a little tough, and there is this tough time. But also there are times where there is this ease, there is this creativity, there is this lightness. And I think it might not necessarily be on the retreat. It might be when you're walking outside, it might be when you are in your daily life, that there are these moments, this lightness, this creativity, this ease. And then, there is the seventh picture, which is called Forgetting the Ox. The ox herder rests alone. So all this work, all this story of this ox, and he's gone. <laughs> Not there no more. No need to worry about it. No need to look for it. And the picture is of the, the little fellow just being in front of a little hut, gazing at the moon. And I think this is when we start to see the meditation as not separate from us. We start to see also ourselves, our mind, our heart, our body, as not separate. We are not, we, we in a way, we are not kind of separate part of ourselves. We kind of become more at ease with who we are, within our environment, within our conditions. And so the, the little fellow, the Oxford, is just resting at home. And I think that's where we kind of start to really bring meditation in our daily life. Because I think meditation is of value not if we just do it on retreat. It has to come with us. It's of not what you do on retreat, because that is here, that is in specific circumstances. But what in a way you have developed, uncovered, a certain kind of dissolving of grasping. This is what one takes home. And then with that, one practice in daily life. So, in a way, I think this picture is about meditation not being exotic, not being separate, but just, in a way, just being the way we are, in whatever circumstances. And often they say, that's when they say, Zen is drawing water, it is carrying wood. So it's kind of like Zen, the meditation is in everyday, very ordinary activity. It doesn't have to be special. And then there is the next picture, number eight, and it's called the ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. So there you have this picture of just a circle, 
They were both gone after all these trouble, you know, looking, searching, fighting. It's all gone. And it was just this circle. And there I think this picture is about emptiness, is about selflessness, but I think it's also about that there is not anymore this feeling, I am meditating. This is me, this is my practice, this is my meditation, this is my meditative state. I think in this picture, a little of the kind of the rigidity, the fixation of this I, me, mine, I am meditating. And you say there is just meditation, there is just this being here. And sometimes it's true that in meditation we can feel in the way that dissolving. But sometimes, once there was this wonderful, uh, long ago on the retreat, there was this young man who came very anxious. He said, oh, I sit in meditation and, and it's all empty, you know. I mean, how am I going to go home? You know, how am I going to drive my car? I said, you know, you still go into the toilet, you're still eating, don't worry, you've not disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, sometimes, if we can have this feeling that we're not, and it's not because we suddenly disappear, and you know, next time we look around, you're not there, you know, kind of in smoke, not at all. It's more this fixing, this holding, this grasping, which I think a lot of our attention is due to that holding onto all kind of things. And I think in that picture it's kind of saying at one point things in a way dissipate, dissolve. There is more this kind of selflessness, this openness, this spaciousness. And I think that's what this picture is about. But then we don't stop here. That's what I, and that is very important. The sequence of the picture don't stop number eight, emptiness. Because often that's the idea. Because there is still the number nine, which is returning to the original place. And there you have the picture, and there is just trees, bamboos, flower blossom, whatever. Generally, something of nature. And it's kind of showing us that, in a way, emptiness is not the end, is not the goal, it's just, in a way, a passageway, an entranceway. And then you, in a way, come back to the world but with being very connected to the world. Very, I think this picture is about interdependence. And I think we have to be very careful about this idea that meditation is about having very special experiences, especially of emptiness. Because in, I mean, in the Zen tradition, there are certain emphasis on satori, on you know, feeling this, feeling that. You read some of these books, you know. I mean, I mean, I think it's a good book in a way, but I think often if you read it, it kind of makes you really feel bad. It's the three pillar of Zen. Because you have a whole section about awakening experience, you know. All these people experiencing emptiness and this and that. And you see that thing, well, I haven't feeling anything. No. <laughs> but you see, I think, you know, you might experience something, but generally it's gone so quickly. And you know, the kind of holding on reassert itself. So I think it's very important to see this picture as, you know, impermanent, transient. It comes, it goes. And so this nice picture is very much, you know, returning to the original place, returning to where you started from. But in a way, looking at it in a different way, not feeling so separate, so apart, so closed off. But you really, in a way, they say that uh, everything can teach the Dharma. Everything is a Dharma talk. 
the sound of the birds, the, the rooks, the, the, the dogs, anything. And not because they are so mystical, suddenly the Buddha appearing in them, but it's more because they are there, and you are there with them, and you can see and be with them in a different way. And then there is the last one, which is entering the marketplace with helping hands. And in this picture, you have the little fellow reappear, and then you have a big fellow, which appears why, I don't know. But the big fellow is like a monk. He's like a monk, a mendicant, a wandering person, a little fat, because I think in, in China, fatness is just a kind of a good feel about it. So he's a little fat, but he's a little ragged, and his shoes are a little torn. And the idea is that, in a way, now you're going back to the world. That, in a way, you might retreat at times to meditate, to pursue the path, but in the end, there is a need to go back to the marketplace, a need to, in a way, demonstrate, actualize the compassion that is there and that, in a way, has been allowed to come even more forth. And I think this picture is very much about that, in a way about demonstrating, responding wisely and compassionately in all circumstances. And what is interesting in the picture is that the, the, man, the little fat man is ragged and with torn shoes. It, it's, not, it's not a picture of the golden Buddha kind of floating away, kind of going to the marketplace so that people can bow to him, not at all. It's kind of a raggedy man and he has, ah, I forgot to say, he has a big bag on his shoulder with, with, with in it, within it, a lot of presents. And very much in there, there is this idea of skillful means. That, you know, he has all kinds of goodies and he's going back to the marketplace but it's going to be very adaptable, very flexible, kind of adapting to circumstances, high or low, be whatever is required. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk a little about today, was about this, about this responsiveness, this kind of, in a way, compassionate, wise responsiveness, because we, we got a question, a note about, what about spontaneity? You know, if you are spontaneous, and often this question appears, people ask this question about spontaneity, you know, isn't the spiritual life, the path, better be then, about spontaneity, you know, but you've heard us talk a lot about, you know, be aware, kind of reflect, and kind of see what's going on. And then the question was, well, spontaneity is very fast, and this, what we seem to talk about, seems to take a little time, you know? <laughs> but actually, I mean, as Ayakema used to say, you know, if you kind of, you see somebody who is suffering, and you say, wait a minute, I do some loving-kindness meditation first, and then I'm going to help you. I mean, it will not really kind of, you know, do the trick. But no, I think this is an interesting point, you know? How do we respond? How... But it goes back to the marketplace with helping hands, with compassion. What does that mean? How does it work, this spontaneity and responding with awareness? And for me, I think in a way, it's very kind of complex. It's because, again, I think the spontaneity and the responding more slowly with awareness <laughs> depends very much on circumstances, on conditions. 
Because I think what we're doing in a way is cultivating. We're cultivating a certain way of being, of opening, of noticing. And then some situation might require you to, to be quite fast. And then in other situations, you might need more time. I think again it depends. So I'm, I'm never sure about how spontaneous is spontaneity. This is, I'm not totally sure. When we talk of it in terms of the spiritual path, I'm not talking of it in terms of the artistic, but even artists, I wonder what is spontaneity there too? What do we mean by it? Because in a way I think often we think of spontaneity as something totally way beyond any intellect and anything like that. But actually we are conscious. Even if we are spontaneous, we are conscious. You know, there is consciousness, there is the utilization of the mind, even to be spontaneous. So I would just want to bring a few examples to look at a few facets of this spontaneity versus uh, responding with awareness. The first example is about uh, a few, few years ago. I suddenly got a phone call and a friend kind of call, called me and said, I am having a hard time. You know, I am having a hard time. And I could, <coughs> and I've been worried about her for some time anyway. And I thought, I have to go. You know. So this was quite early in the morning, about like 8:30. So I took the car. I went to I went to see her. And all day I spent with her. Every single second, every single minute, I was with her. I really was with her because I felt I had to be with her. And it was, in one way, it, it was not reasoned. Because it was just, in a way, responding to, you know, I had not planned to spend the whole day with her. It was not at all part of what I was going to do that day. But she called, I went, and I spent the whole day. And again and again, time to time, I mean, there would come the thought, should I go? And, and you know, it, no, no. Till in a way, in the evening, <coughs> I felt, it's okay. Now I can go. And so, <coughs> in a way, it was spontaneous. But... I don't know, I think I was also responding to something. There was some kind of, you know, some, there was, I think it was both. It was spontaneously responding with awareness, it seems to me. And sometimes that's what we do. It's not very, inc it's not very, ref ref uh, you don't really think about it so much. But there is this response because there is a need. And because you can also respond to it in that way. I think also the circumstances allow you to do that. Then there is another <coughs> example which is a little more recent. Recent. This was in my new home. So uh, it's best uh, toward, I don't know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock, I am going to prepare lunch. And suddenly my mother burst in and said, I have had an accident. So I said, are you okay? She said, yeah, yeah I'm fine. You're cooking. I don't want to bother you, but I need your help later. And boom, she goes down. <laughs> so I kind of like, wait a minute. So I'm kind of, for a few seconds, I am kind of, you know, following the message. You have to eat, eat, and then later. And then I think, wait a minute. She has an accident. I must go. I must kind of, you know, help her, obviously. So I go down. And then, you know, I kind of listen to the story, make her calm down, sit down, tell me the story. And I phone the insurance company and all that, because it was with a little car and all that. You know, so I, you know, and I spend a kind of good, I think, half hour, an hour, you know, just doing that. 
But what I found interesting was that the first, it was not immediate, because sometimes you're shocked, sometimes somebody comes and says something. And what they say, and what they seem to, to indicate are two different things. And I think it takes you some time to kind of say, wait a minute, something was wrong there, you know? Maybe I can do something. So I think that's why sometimes you're not spontaneous, but then you become spontaneous. It's kind of like, it kind of gets to you and then you go and uh, do it. Oh, another experience, which again is a recent one, in our new home, and this one in some way could be seen as spontaneous, spontaneous. So we've worked all day, writing, afternoon, we really worked hard, I don't know, painting or something. We've cleaned ourselves up, and we, as we, what we generally do after that, by six o'clock, we just sit down on the sofa in the living room. And then she we'll put some music. Put some music, we just sit there, you know, taking a breath. And then we hear little steps. And here is a little niece who comes time to time to stay with my mother and time to time comes to see what we're doing up here. So she, yes, she comes. And she enters, there is a music on. And she said, there is music, I am going to dance. <laughs> so she's three years old. And so she needs some cushions, she needs a blanket, so I organize everything. And then we just sit. And so I'm sitting in the in the sofa, Stephen is sitting opposite in the armchair, and then there is this, it's quite special, so she has a new space. And then she danced. I mean, it's not uh, Margot Fontaine, but <laughs> she danced. And this lasted 20 minutes, more than 20 minutes, I think, you know. And we just sat there. <laughs> and then the time she would look at us. I mean, we were just looking at her all the time anyway. Like that. And she was doing her thing. And it was a very special moment. Very special. Not premeditated, nothing. It just seemed all the circumstances, the conditions were so that she could do her thing for 20 minutes, you know. And we are there, we just had, it was kind of like a meditation on being. That's what I felt. It was just meditation on being. And what is, and then, you know, she. I don't know what happened, and then she kind of went off and had to go to sleep or whatever. But it was quite an extraordinary moment of utter peace, utter being. And what is interesting is that now, they, now that when she comes back, she said, oh, let's put some music, let's dance. <laughs> but it's not the same, because, you know, she is not the same, and the situation is not the same. But, you know, if she wants more activity, she wants me to dance with her. You know, and auntie gets tired and kind of things like that. But that spontaneity, sometimes I think in a way, there is this idea of in spontaneity to do something. But sometimes it's not doing anything. It's just being, just really being with another person without doing anything can actually be also very helpful, very compassionate. And not just for oneself, not just for the other person, but for oneself as well. I felt it was like the three of us were kind of, I don't know, sharing this amazing moment. And also sometimes, I think we can have a spontaneous moment, and they're not wise whatsoever. 
You see, I think this is one thing we have to, you know, and I know for myself, wisdom. Uh, you know, wisdom is so important. Inquiry is so important. Because I remember long ago, I was in Korea, I was a bit hungry, so I bought some peanuts. And in Korea, you can't eat by yourself. I mean, this is like, you know, taboo. taboo. You have to eat with other people. And I was in the bath, and I was eating my peanuts, and spontaneously, I wanted to give them to somebody else, of course, to share, you know. And I saw, I saw a little boy. I said, oh, yes, you know. Spontaneously, I kind of, you know, gave the peanuts to this young boy. And within two minutes, it was a disaster. You know, there was peanuts everywhere, and it was too little to eat peanuts anywhere, and etc. And I realized, you know, I wanted to give something, you know, spontaneously. But it was for myself, not for him whatsoever. So in a way, I think we have to be careful of, you know, this, I have to express myself, I have to give. I would say, be a little careful and kind of a little wisdom around it. I think, you know, it's vital for it to be what I would call, in a way, a kind of a wise, skillful, compassionate spontaneity. And I think according to circumstances, it might be faster or it might be slower or whatever. And also, I would like to tell a story about a Zen artist, a Zen painter. Because you see this calligraphy, you know, of this kind of just this kind of black thing, you know, on a piece of paper. And you think, my, that's amazing, you know, you know, this is a spontaneous moment. <laughs> and um, we were, in, there was this lady, I had seen her calligraphy, and I really liked her, I liked the calligraphy, so I really wanted to meet her. And uh, we went to meet her, and she was a, uh, what was wonderful, yes, she was a really, really ordinary housewife, Korean housewife. I mean, she looked totally ordinary. She could not have been more ordinary. It was wonderful. And at the same time, she was this very kind of new about tea, and she has these teacups dating from 1300. It was kind of, ooh, very. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it was all very refined. And then, she was very keen on Stephen, because he was so white, he thought he was a great literary person. Meaning he stayed indoors and read all day. Uh, and so, we are there with her. And then we said, you know, could you, we would really like, you know, to see you do calligraphy, you know, and, you know, that would be, you know, really, I thought, oh. So I said, okay, okay, you know, I'll do some calligraphy. So, she sits, cross leg, she puts the paper, she puts a pile of papers, you know, about 10, 15 pieces of paper. She has the ink, which was already prepared, and then for the next 15 minutes, she just take a piece of paper, boom, you know, the piece of paper, Oh. And she does that, you know, and we're kind of watching this. <laughs> you know, and, and time to time she, she does that well and she, hmm, and then she put it on another side. <laughs> and finally we got one of those. And it was very interesting because in a way, it was spontaneous but relatively repetitive. You know, and that's what they do. You see, Zen calligraphy, uh, Zen painting, what you see seems to be so free and so on the moment. They, they do it. I mean, I've seen them several times. They just do it, they just do it, they just do it. And then one will for them seems to really, something is captured. 
in themselves in the paper, something kind of gel in a way, and that they will put aside. But I thought it was interesting in terms of kind of spontaneity and kind of a wise response. So in a way, I think when we talk of this spontaneity and wise response, I think that is back to what I said already, you know, we, there is what we cultivate, what we develop, which in a way will allow us to be more spontaneous in a kind and compassionate way. I think there is also what is there already, what is there in us, and that at any moment can respond, like me responding to that friend. It was there in me to respond and to be with her and to, in a way, held her for that day. And also, I think it's also a little according to conditions. And so I think that there can be a little of a teaching about can we help our conditions so we are more naturally, compassionately responsive? And can we notice what is it that is an obstacle to that? And I think in our daily life, one of the greatest obstacles to respond compassionately is busyness. You are busy, you don't think of anything else. You know, somebody might kind of be dying. Well, wait a minute, you know, later, when I'm not so busy, I'll, I'll be there. Oh, I'm a compassionate person, I'll be there then. No, you know, I can do it then, but not now, not now. It's very interesting. If we are very busy, it's kind of like the, we kind of grasp at the busyness and we don't see anything. Or when we're stressed, again, the same thing. And so there are many different conditions, which in a way, I think close us off. But I think in order to be spontaneous, in a way there needs to be an openness, there needs to be a certain opening, a, a kind of a, a presentness to what is, a kind of a, a meeting of circumstances, a meeting of the environment, a kind of a being there and responding. And so that's why I think spontaneity is essential at the level of being there, that you're present to these circumstances. You know, two hours before, kind of, already start to think what you're going to do two hours later so that you can truly be compassionate then. But it's more that in many different ways we cultivate that when it's demanded of us and it's really there, we can in a way be there for it without having to prepare for it. And so I'll just finish with a, a last story which is a little about that, in a way being in the moment, being spontaneous to what he is. So this one is a bit kind of a radical story in a way. It's about Han Song Su Chi, who is, uh, I presume most of you might have heard of her. She's a Burmese Buddhist activist. I mean, she's a political activist who is a Buddhist. Because everybody is Buddhist. The nasty guys and the good guys are all Buddhist. So, the fact that she is. So, but for, she's a practicing Buddhist. And at the same time, she's a political activist who has been under house arrest and had all kinds of things happen to her, and it's quite a difficult situation. And one day, when she was not under house arrest, and she was with um, a group of, her, uh, of people who work with her, there was quite a kind of a little crowd. And then suddenly, there was the crowd, her, and then there were soldiers. And the soldiers pointed guns at them, like they were going to shoot them. And then straight away, she kind of went towards the soldier. She went to, 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 to be in front of them. And she said, why did she do this? It's because she felt in that moment, 
that if, if they could focus on her, then they would just shoot her, they would not shoot the rest of the people. So at that level you could say this was spontaneously responding to the situation. And at the same time when people asked her, but why are not you afraid? She said, of course, I was terribly afraid. But I was not blocked by my fear. I was not stopped by my fear. And so I just went. And then somebody stopped uh, the soldier. Uh, somebody higher up came and stopped the whole situation. But it was interesting that there was that spontaneity, but at the same time it was resigned in a way. She had kind of, in a way, so I think it's kind of like wisdom, in a way, comes up. There is this wisdom and compassion comes up. Can come up like that naturally. So, this is. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.